from Movendi International, I'm Mike Dünnbier. This is the Alcohol Issues podcast. It is Sunday, October 25th, 2020. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Alcohol Issues podcast, our weekly conversation about the latest alcohol issues in policy and science and new alcohol industry revelations. Every episode, we are also bringing you an in-depth conversation about alcohol issues of global importance. This week, we highlight two alcohol issues that we think deserve special attention. In policy and science news, we talk about the latest global burden of disease study, its key findings and what they mean for alcohol policy making. And in the Big Alcohol Watch, we discuss evidence from Ireland about the child rights harm due to alcohol and the delay in implementing the Public Health Alcohol Act. But first, we begin with an in-depth conversation. This week we have two guests and I've brought reinforcement. This week we are joined by Nathan Mani and May van Schalkwijk. Nathan is a Harkness Fellow at the Boston University School of Public Health and an Assistant Professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. May is a Public Health Doctor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. They are two of the authors of a highly important and innovative research article that we have discussed on the podcast previously. Their paper is called Dark Nudges and Sludge in Big Alcohol, Behavioral, Economics, Cognitive Biases and Alcohol Industry Corporate Social Responsibility. Their paper was published in the Millibank Quarterly in September of this year. For the conversation with Nathan and May, I have reinforcement today in Kristina Sperkova. Kristina is the president of Movendi International and as psychologist has studied social norms and behavior herself. In our conversation with May and Nathan, we talk about the findings of their research and what they mean in the larger context of social norms and healthy environments and behaviors. This research is innovative because it applies well-studied concepts of behavioral economics and how human psychology works to the field of prevention and reduction of alcohol harms. In discussing with May and Nason, we learn how the alcohol industry deliberately exploits cognitive biases and we get to understand better how information and campaigns to increase recognition of alcohol harms could be designed. With May and Nason, we enjoyed a mind-blowing conversation about how the human mind works, how the alcohol industry exploits this and what could be done to better promote health and well-being in an evidence-based way. We are very excited to have you guys uh, with us today and to discuss a little bit in broader terms your research into the alcohol industry and then specifically the latest scientific paper that you have published about sludges, nudges and uh, I think dark nudges. But we wanted to start with a simple question, and that is, could you please talk a little bit about what your research work is in general about and, and what it means in detail uh, that you are doing? So, yeah, it's, it's a, thank you very much. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, going back uh, to where broadly where our research comes from. In my case, I'm interested in the commercial determinants of health more broadly. So how large commercial actors shape the health of populations. And my interests span three main areas. One being uh, the health and health equity harms uh, caused by such actors. Two being uh, their influence on public discourse and understanding. And three being their impact on policy and, and research. So those are kind of my three main areas. And a lot of that research has focused on the alcohol industry in recent years, in part because um, there's such a strong conflict of interest with population health. And also because compared to the tobacco industry, I think it remains uh, relatively 
understudied considering the extent of its harm and considering this extent of the conflict of interest. And, and so, yeah, that's where my research is focused uh, on so far. And what about you, May? So I work very closely with Nason and, and I also work on, on the commercial determinants of health and, and those um, types of areas that he's describing. Um, I also um, am quite interested in, in what um, Nason was explaining, which is the influence of commercial actors and the bodies that they um, fund in how they shape what people understand about a particular problem and the information that they're given about a particular problem. Um, and then what that means for, uh, for example, the way they might, might understand harms, but also what they might advocate their uh, policymakers to do to, to regulate a certain, a certain industry and, and, and what they ask for in, 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 in what would keep them safe or what policies we'd, we'd, um, we need to keep people safe. Um, the other area that I've also worked on is understanding how commercial actors might uh, seek to undermine um, the impacts of a policy once it comes out. So, for example, I've done some work on looking at how the tobacco industry and building upon the research of other people might seek to undermine the impact of tobacco taxes, for example. So I'm interested in once we have a policy, how it might be undermined, even though we have it already, it might not actually have the impact it wants. Yeah, and these uh, topics that you uh, summarize now that you are looking into, they're really so interesting, many of them, like you said now, May, the interference of, uh, for example, the alcohol or tobacco industries in then undermining policies that have been adopted. But today, I think we will, it's actually a little bit pity even, we will focus on um, one specific set of uh, topics, and that is, I think, this public understanding of the harms and people's uh, ability to act on this and i think it's uh, it's very interesting to see how people take these uh, understandings into advocacy work but also in their own behavior change so um, we are looking forward to get into this um, but before that we wanted to ask you also over the years you and together with uh, other colleagues have really examined deeply the alcohol industry's tactics. Uh, you have mentioned this now a little bit in terms of how they frame science, uh, their corporate social responsibility. I think, May, you alluded to this and, and other tactics of the industry. And could you just elaborate a little bit, please? Why does this matter and uh, why is this analysis important? Um, so this is this is an area that um, uh, well Nason's been working in for many years and and then um, myself more more recently. Um, but just to also explain that we build upon many many years of people before us who've also been looking at the way there's this tension between people who uh, organisations or, or industries who produce harmful products and then this kind of bigger question of who should provide the information about these harms and who should be um, producing the evidence about these harms. And what we've come to, to recognize and predominantly through um, many years of being able to study the tobacco industry because of the release of their internal documents is understanding that this is an area of great focus for industries, which is understandable because it, it obviously influences what people think about the products, what they understand about the harms, and therefore, obviously, that's a great um, interest to the people, to the industries that are trying to sell these products. So that's setting the scene. Um, so myself and Nason, um, we've looked at particularly the information that has been provided by both industries, but with a focus on those organizations that are funded by um, mm -hmm industry and and often therefore seen as, as somehow independent or potentially separate and our question really was um and and my I'm, I'll, I'll pass over to nathan to maybe go through some of the strategies that we've identified but we've been able to look over years and different types of information and different types of questions and say but is this information what we would expect from an independent um public health oriented body. And I'll pass over to Nathan to maybe talk a little bit about some of the things we've been noticing over the years and how, what are the implications this might have for understanding both um, those organizations, their role, but also what that might mean for, for people and, and, and public health. 
Yeah, thanks, May. I mean, I think you uh, you spoke beautifully to the to the broader importance of this. Um, specifically, what we find uh, in our research in the last few years, uh, well, what we've sought to to examine is the extent to which uh, the information, the strategies that these organisations uh, use and what they provide, um, to what extent it matches um, what independent campaigns might look like, what uh, public health information uh, might look like and to examine that and triangulate that with what we know about uh, the interests of their funders and what we find is that a lot of times there is a strategic alignment um, more towards the interests of, of the funder rather than towards uh, the interests of, of uh, public health. The, obviously in, in, in this case we can't really uh, say anything about the the intent because we're just we're just assessing the materials it's not like with tobacco where you have internal documentation that show mm -hmm. that there was an intent to mislead but rather what we see through triangulation of, of different uh, evidence sources is that there are clear patterns um, that of divergence from what independent public health information might look like so for example one, one of the early studies that i did with uh, mark Pettigrew, we looked at um, responsible drinking campaigns and the extent to which uh, they actually defined what they meant by responsible drinking. We all know, we've all heard of these responsible drinking campaigns because they're everywhere. You know, they're really, really pervasive. And uh, they're touted often as an example of corporate social responsibility of like industry being a good corporate actor. Um, but what we find is that uh, what responsible drinking is, is almost never defined in these campaigns. And one of the very first kind of things you would want to do in a public health campaign is actually define what it is that you seek to achieve. And instead, we find they tended to be strategically ambiguous and focus a lot around individual behaviors, you know, things like making sure you hydrate enough or mm -hmm. that you, you know, don't assault anyone, that you get home safe, uh, that you don't drink and drive. Almost never mentioning, literally almost never mentioning uh, government uh, guidelines around alcohol consumption, specific uh, alcohol amounts, and that kind of thing. And, and that, uh, that um, is part of a broader pattern. We looked at communications on Twitter by such organizations. Mm. We looked at how they use language around complexity, you know, that alcohol harm is very complex, and, you know, alcohol is, is only one of many things, you know, that, that causes harm. And more recently, we looked at their provision of uh, information on alcohol during pregnancy, how they link uh, alcohol to cancer. And again and again, we find that they really diverge from independent sources of health information. Uh, and that's obviously hugely problematic. Mm. So to, would it be fair to summarize what you have now explained to say that the alcohol industry is not a trustworthy source of information when it comes to understanding the harms of alcohol and how to tackle the harms i mean that's certainly um that's certainly what's emerging from our work um to go back to something may mentioned earlier we know a lot more about the tobacco industry because so much documentation was revealed and a review of all those do those documents and memos find that really uh, the tobacco industry was motivated by three things um, they wanted to avoid negative PR, they wanted to avoid litigation, and they wanted to avoid regulation. And all those three, three things uh, were because uh, they were seeking to maximize revenue and profit. And really, those are the things that you would expect of any multinational company, any publicly owned company. You would expect them to yeah. do that. And that's what their competence is. So in the case of alcohol, it's very reasonable to assume those, <laughs> those same motivations apply. And once again, those same motivations clash with, with the public interest. And I think yeah. you're right. What we see here is because of those basic motivations, um, campaigns like the ones we described, they achieve all those objectives. They you know, distract from meaningful regulation. They avoid negative PR. And they reduce the likelihood of, of litigation. So they achieve all those objectives. You know, that seems to be what our research suggests.
Yeah, it's it's interesting to listen to you guys and and just also process uh, the different aspects of alcohol harm. You mentioned cancer, uh, pregnancy, um, this kind of in general responsible alcohol use um, that you have analyzed. And uh, so we wanted to now go uh, go on and look a little bit more into your study, as I said, it, it would be just so interesting to uh, learn more about also this analysis that you did about how the alcohol industry communicates alcohols linked to cancer. But today uh, we will focus on your, I think it's your latest study, right? It's called uh, Dark Nudges and Sludge in Big Alcohol, Behavioral Economics, Cognitive Biases and Alcohol Industry Corporate Social responsibility and I think it was published in September so not such a long time ago and uh, may maybe you could start us off could you please summarize what this study is about and why you thought it's needed well of course um thank you it's uh, you know it's a pleasure to be able to to um you know, bring bring the work to light by 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 discussing it actually um so it's important it's got some we think some important messages um so just just as a, a maybe a bit of a broader background um that made us um, really want to develop this work um is that in recent um years but building on a, a larger body of work um of what's called behavioral economics um, particularly in the field of public health, there's been a, a recognition of the potential benefits of what is called nudge, um, building on um, much more um, elaborate understanding of how we think, how we go about our daily lives, and that there's a lot of automatic things that we do every day very quickly. And as a kind of counter to the recognition of what's called maybe unhealthy environments or sick societies or obesogenic environments is what is it we can do in our environment to make it automatic to be healthy the healthy choice being the the the, the quicker um, option you know the kind of day-to-day -day buzzy life how can it be made automatically helpful yeah. um and of course that that's fantastic and it's great to see that that kind of work and we have seen from people who are very prominent in that area um uh, taylor and sunstein say things like that in, in the in the spirit of nudges they should be used with the intent of promoting public health um but uh, like many things in in life there's always the risk that actually that's not always the case. We know that good things can be exploited in certain ways that serve different interests. And we, um, we acknowledge that in the literature we were seeing people writing about this. So, so for example, we have colleagues in the gambling um, field such as Natasha Skull and Philip Newell who were writing about dark nudges in gambling. So what would make people keep gambling or as opposed to stop. This can be the way the buttons are made or the colors and the sounds. Um, but we also see this in other ways. So for example, if you have a subscription with a certain company, instead of asking you if you want to continue the next year, they just keep charging you. These little things that just push you down this path of not being particularly in your interest, but more in the industry's interest. Um, and what we wanted to do is to say, well, if we know that other industries do this, and we also take our kind of larger body of work saying that alcohol industry funded social responsibility organizations, we can see that their information potentially is not aligning with what we would expect from um, you know, quality public health evidence. Mm. Are they actually using behavioral economics in what is often subtle ways we see from others um, in a way that potentially um, does nudge you more away from the, you know, evidence of harm towards, um, you know, more um, the misinformation that we've seen through the previous studies, but also in, an, in another way, nudging you towards a more favorable um, perspective of alcohol and, and, and drinking. Mm. Um, and maybe, maybe Nathan could elaborate a bit on some of the, the ways in which we went, went about this. Um, and we also, with what we wanted to do is not just look at, into this ourselves, but was, and we wanted to develop a framework that others could take from this study 
to push this agenda further to maybe look beyond just these types of organizations but other industries and other ways in which these nudges are out there and and do they undermine um, nudges that are intended for, for public health yeah i mean i think may may spoke to it really really well um i, I would just add that uh what's really helpful is that nudge is actually quite a well-developed field of study because of its use uh, in health promoting and behavior shaping ways like there's some really famous examples like putting fruit at eye level in a really pleasing way as a way of nudging us towards eating that fruit instead of choosing something less healthy another famous example is the positioning of a, the image of a fly in a man's urinal to kind of reduce <laughs> to improve accuracy as a very kind of famous example of a, of a nudge yeah. that's sort of you know gently encouraging uh, you know better behavior um, and but because of because of its prominence there are these frameworks of the different types of nudge that exist so what we what we did in this study is we sort of applied those frameworks to study this type of information from these uh, alcohol industry funded corporate social responsibility organizations. And we looked at things like um, the placement of health information, how available key information was, uh, what properties it had, you know, was it functional? Uh, were parts of it inconsistent in terms of the color, the size, the scope, um, and what information was foregrounded and backgrounded? These are all different types of nudge and, or sludge whenever it's harder to access certain information. And yeah, so that was our, basically our study was to, to systematically go through and examine these and then come up with a framework specifically for dark nudges and sludge that could be applied to other, to other things. You guys were talking in the beginning also about the information about cancer and whether this information is delivered or not. And from the, the latest and the paper that I was then reading, like you actually report, okay, the, the industry, alcohol industry also reports about cancer or like they somehow mention it on their webpage. So why isn't it sufficient? Can you go deeper like into different examples of these uh, types or frames that they are using? First of all, specifically on cancer, there is, uh, there is a kind of um, a larger body of evidence about that specifically. We wrote a paper uh, in drug, drug and Alcohol Review, I think a couple of years ago, where we looked at a huge amount of information uh, specifically on cancer provided by these organizations and we find various types of misinformation sometimes there is correct information but it's buried among a lot of other caveats so for example uh, an example would be alcohol causes information causes uh, cancer just like sunlight red meat and you know and they list a whole other a bunch of other things you could say the same about sm about smoking smoking causes lung cancer along with a range of other things like sunlight, you know, like all these kind of things. What it's doing is it's diminishing the impact of that message. It's kind of confusing from the fact that alcohol is an independent risk factor for cancer, a significant one. Um, but what we also see is that certain types of cancer are omitted in favor of others. So breast cancer is less likely to be omitted. That could be done quite subtly. So in a page about alcohol uh, harm in this particular study, they use an image of a man and so breast cancer is not, you know, is just completely avoided. In other cases, the information appears, but it's, it's uh, below the fold, as they say. So it's not among the key information on the web page. As you arrive, you have to scroll down quite a lot to get to it. That's a form of, of sludge. It's harder for you to access that key information. So these are some of the ways in which cancer specifically can, can be on a website but it's not uh, either as accessible as it should be, or it's almost um, hidden or obscured and among a whole lot of other uh, less relevant information. And then what I'll just add to, you know, Nathan summarized actually some of the key things that we've seen very well. And what I'll add to this is all of this is based on a really sound understanding in behavioral economics of how our minds, how we process information. And so all these things serve to either, either lead our minds to dismiss it because somehow it's not clear, if it's hard to process, we, we don't like to interact with that kind of information. So sometimes I like to people to, to 
get people to also think about this in the context of some other ways in which we have put information. For example, the cigarette box is classic. Smoking kills, smoking is addictive, smoking causes lung cancer. They don't then follow this all up by saying, well, this is addictive too, and this is addictive too, and this is, it, it's clear because we're trying to get a clear message across. And I think that's, that's something to, to keep in mind. And I think one of the other things is some of the, sometimes the more subtle um, uh, ways in which we saw this was something called like, for example, priming or framing, which is all to do about even what you just start off with in your starting paragraph. So instead of starting with alcohol is known to be a risk factor for breast cancer, the more you drink, the greater your risk. It will start with things like, there are multiple causes of cancer. There are situations where the opinion of scientists and they'll bring in things like opinion, which automatically frames the rest of the page as if there's debate or as if this is based on opinion, not decades of cohort studies. And these are subtle ways in which actually then just your reading you might not be aware of, but you're automatically potentially dismissing what comes next. Yeah, this is uh, really very interesting. I think this whole understanding of how the human mind works, as you say, May, how we are processing information, what we respond to and what we don't respond to. So we will get into this more. Um, but I wanted to ask you, Mason, this was uh, cool also to understand what nudges are these two examples that you talked about with where fruit is placed um, and the fly in the urinals. But could you? Um, May and Nason, please also just explain for me uh, what are dark nudges and what are sludges so that we that I understand. Sure, so dark nudge is, is a term that was coined by a gambling researcher called Phil Newell um, and he used it to describe nudges that encourage the consumption of harmful products and that's why uh, he calls them dark nudges. Um, he studied these in gambling quite extensively. And in gambling, there are many examples um, of these. Some examples are uh, the lack of windows and clocks in casinos. Mm. You know, this is like a, to avoid you getting a sense of time passing. Mm. Or uh, in, uh, you know, when you, when you see electronic gambling machines, uh, they have now started to frame losses as near misses quite often. So instead wow. of you thinking, oh, you know, I'm lo I've lost three times in a, in a row, I should probably stop. You're thinking, I've nearly won three times in a row. I should keep going. So it's a dark nudge that's encouraging you to, to keep going uh, yeah. and to place more bets. Another example would be uh, in-game live betting. You know, you're watching a sports game and suddenly you get a notification. Oh, now would be a good time to bet on, on this particular thing. They're nudging you uh, further. So that's an these are examples of dark uh, nudges. Sludge is a type of, is, is actually defined by Sunstein, who, who's done a lot of work on this type of thing, is a type of friction that makes healthy choices and behaviors more difficult. Mm. So it's sort of the counterpart to a dark nudge. A dark nudge is pushing you towards more uh, of health-harming behavior. Sludge is a type of friction that's preventing you from making the, the right choice. It's kind of leading you towards the status quo or the default option. You know what I mean? Mm. So these, these are the two, uh, the two concepts that, that we were exploring in this paper. And do you have examples um, for alcohol or is it still a little bit too little researched? Uh, so in, in our paper, we, we find quite a few examples of, uh, for each of the different categories of nudge that we were looking at. So, for example, an example of, <clears throat> of uh, sludge for, would be positioning of uh, important health information way, way down the page. So, for example, on a website that provided information about alcohol-related harms, uh, the section on drinking during pregnancy, which is, which is a source of a significant amount of alcohol-related harm, yeah. is like in the 42nd section out of 45 sections on alcohol-related harm, way, wow. way below sections on whether alcohol gives you a beer belly or whether alcohol makes you pee more, you know, like these kind of really insignificant things. So that's, a, you can imagine, that's quite a, 
uh, that, that's kind of nudging you away from reading all the way down to the serious information, right? Um, and other examples include uh, the color of uh, pregnancy warnings, you know, like you'll have a stop sign around a pregnancy logo, but it's not red like stop signs would be. It's green mm. or a different color. These are examples of like these conflicting uh, nudge messages. I don't know, May, do you have any more you want to share? Yeah, so we, for, for, for this paper, and, and Nathan summarized a, a lot of the findings very well, but we, we also went a little bit further with the sludge where, for example, when when we're talking about maybe say real life sludge, it might be that, you know, it's hard to get to the healthy part in the supermarket or, or another example would be if you wanted to um, undergo self-exclusion from, from gambling venues that you have to go there, you have to fill out multiple forms and the more you have to do to make the healthy choices, it, I kind of see it as like, if you imagine trying to walk through mud in gumboots, you know, it's just trying to slow you down from getting to where you, you want to, you get to, to, to make yourself healthy. Um, so that as Nathan was saying, there's the nudge um, that nudges you towards the product and then there's the sludge that slows you down from getting to the healthy one. Um, but we were understanding that also when you're looking at a website, we're, we're slightly talking about a, a kind of different um, interaction. So we also extended sludge to thinking about information that is harder to process, harder to get to. So as Nason was saying, it might be that you go through lots of pages, but similarly, it can be that it's, it's just, it, it's in amongst all different risk factors, for example, as Nason was saying before. So that, that's also, that's framing, but it's also sludge in that it's slow to process through to the information that you ultimately are looking for. Um, it's a, just another way of kind of contextualizing it in the setting of looking at a, at a website. So for me, that was also very, actually your paper is very upsetting to read, but it's not your fault. <laughs> but uh, I, I was also following then some then links or these examples I really wanted to see. So how is it applied? And the, what was really upsetting for me was the information. Again, this, this was about cancer, but the, you said that this uh, like uh, information that can be uh, confusing for people or cannot be seen so so seriously uh, that was written with black on a very light purple color so that was very easy to read and then there was the, there was some information about alcohol and cancer like effects but that was written with the black on dark purple so no one will actually read it it's like okay I have read about cancer enough and I don't need to read more so that was also a very interesting example. And I don't know whether it's sludge or dark nudge, like which part of that, but it's uh, definitely discouraged me from reading. Yeah, I think what we really wanted to get across is that, you know, there's, there's a, a real alignment um, between, um, you know, some of the things that we were finding with also, you know, that have been also informed by, by marketing practices. And so a lot of nudge will also be not, not just about the information, where it is, where it's placed, but strategic use of fonts um, and, and colors. You know, it's all about where's your eye gonna go? Where's your mind gonna be drawn to? And then where will you stop? And what will be prioritized? Again, it's coming back to this whole thing that we live in a fast paced, automatic kind of lifestyle. And um, every flipping it the other way, I think, is also just recognizing that um, sometimes we kind of just would maybe put our hands up and say, we're just talking about information here. Um, as, a, as a public health doctor, I, I like to emphasize information provided to the public is a public health intervention, like anything else, whether that's you know, managing COVID. And even then, information is a key pillar for a public health response. And so I, I think, and maybe Mason agrees, is that we take information given to the public about harms very seriously. So the fonts, the colors, the wording, everything should be scrutinized so that it's maximizing public health um, and maximizing the public's access to clear information. And so why we wanted to detail all this is we think that that's not what's happening here and that we've been able to show that through showing that actually we're seeing a lot of what we would say not nudges but more dark nudges as in they're not really directing you towards clear helpful information and just for me to understand is this like one rogue tiny 
uh, alcohol industry front group that does this, I don't know, somewhere remotely in the world that you have found to paint the alcohol industry in bad light? Or who are these uh, corporate social responsibility groups that you have analyzed who do this? So we looked at uh, a range of these corporate social responsibility groups. National, these are national level organizations. Often they're uh, the organization that people are signposted to on alcohol labeling, on all alcohol labeling within a country and on all adverts within a country. So it's quite a, lar a significant driver of information. I mean, uh, DrinkAware, which is the UK's uh, main such body, uh, receives millions of unique website visitors every year. Uh, you know, it, it varies by year, but anything from seven to over 10 million unique visitors per year. So we're not talking about niche uh, websites. And the other thing to bear in mind is often these websites are, are being mentioned in the context of um, label uh, amendments, label regulations. As, as being alternatives to actually providing more information on product labeling, saying, oh, we could just provide a QR code. Most people are digital natives now, and they'll take, a, take them to that website where all the information is anyway. So these are also organizations that are being proposed as forming like key pillars of alcohol information for the public. Yes, and, and we looked at examples from around the world. And in the past, we've looked at examples ranging from the US, Canada, Australia, to, to the UK and Ireland. And one thing I'll just add, add to, to what Nathan is saying is we also um, looked at a lot of the um, organizations that have been looked at before in many of, of our studies and, and other people's studies. So what we were wanting to show as well is that um, there's a kind of series of strategies that we're now seeing. So, you know, we were documenting dark nudge here, but as Nason was describing earlier in the program, that there's been other ways in, in you know, kind of ambiguity of messaging, or as you say, the kind of um, misinformation strategies as well. So I think something that we discussed in the paper was that, you know, it, it's, um, it's, it's across multiple studies now that we're seeing a kind of consistent deviation from what we would expect from, from public health information. So guys, like uh, another thing that was really shocking for me was the social norming that you described in the paper. Could you explain a little bit more? What is it? How it works? Social norming is when you provide information on what other people are doing as a way to guide uh, the reader's uh, behavior. And you can do that regardless of whether that's, that behavior is a good thing or a bad thing. So uh, examples of this would be uh, to say, um, you know, most people are having a drink because it's dry January is over. That, that's like uh, starting a health information message that way. It's, it's introducing you to a social norm. It's saying most other people are doing this, <laughs> which is kind of um, priming you to also to think, oh, most other people are doing this. This is a normal thing. I too should be doing this. Another example would be to say, you know, uh, are you on the are you on the way uh, to the races? Uh, remember to hydrate. It's like creating this idea of a social norm that uh, everybody must drink at the races uh, enough that I need to hydrate. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's just a couple of examples of where, through starting or including in your information, these notions of what other people are doing you're generating this concept of a social norm that can be quite powerful in shaping then what the reader does or perceives as normal. And then I think, I mean, Nathan, Nathan's gotten it spot on. That's what we mean is this kind of reference to, to a group of, of, of a larger group that you're doing. And often, again, that's kind of building on this cognitive bias that we, we like to belong and automatically we will maybe feel a bit better about something, even if it's negative, but because many other people are. So sometimes even the information provided might be something like, you know, um, trying, it might appear that it's telling you about something not to do. So for example, a certain percentage of people drink to cope with uh, their stress. And it might be don't use alcohol to cope with stress, but you've still given this, you know, large body of people who do do it. Um, and it just coming back to then flipping that the other way and thinking about, framing is why not flip it the other way and say this percentage of people don't use alcohol 
to cope with their stress. And that's where you get the subtlety. So they'll flip it. There might be, first of all, the social norming, but then how, even how that's framed, it won't be the social norm of the large body who aren't doing the thing that you want to talk about. So that's where the, even that little nuance comes in there. And we saw that too. I think this is just very interesting for also us to know and like organizations that are doing prevention work because they're also the programs like DARE and such, they are actually telling young people that also everyone is using alcohol and other drugs and you have to learn to say no or dare to say no. So that's also actually social norming, right? And uh, we have to be careful with that as well. Yeah, no, I agree. And actually, uh, one of the things we wanted to do with this paper is to provide a framework so that people could assess messages themselves and say, um, am I accidentally framing this the wrong way? Or is this organization uh, doing this in, in, in my local context? And these can be really powerful. I think it's important to stress um, these tactics are not just uh, kind of um, unsavory or confusing. There's a large body of evidence that they create biases that are quite powerful in shaping people's behaviors. Even what we said before about, you know, including less relevant or very kind of trivial health information along with very serious health information, that might just seem, okay, it's confusing, but I can pick out the, the serious health information. Actually, what we tend to do subconsciously is average out the risk. That's what we tend to do subconsciously. And that's quite powerful. So if you include a lot of these minor risks, you're, you are genuinely diluting that serious risk message. So it is quite important that we evaluate information, both the information that we produce, but more importantly, you know, the information that's out there in huge quantities that's produced by the alcohol industry. And this is excellent how you have framed this now. You have actually already talked about the question that I wanted to ask because you analyzed websites and communication material. And I, I wanted to ask, so what is the danger in this? Um, if people don't go to the website, okay, you said that drink aware millions of people um, go there every year, unique users. So, but I understand both they are exploiting biases and they are establishing harmful norms or Uh, social expectations about how we are dealing with alcohol in a context, as May said earlier, uh, that should actually inform about the harms of alcohol. So it's maybe even um, putting this kind of uh, framing, this kind of uh, exploiting biases on steroids. Yeah, and I think it's important to view this um, as one part of a much bigger whole. So uh, corporate social responsibility is, is one part, is one part of a much larger strategy. And this type of uh, information is one part of corporate social responsibility. Um, and I think it's important to, to think of it in that way. And what May said before is, I think a really quite powerful way of viewing these things. These campaigns are interventions and they should be viewed as having real impacts on real people. I mean, the, the funders say these have real impacts, but good impacts. Uh, if you think of a pharmaceutical treatment that maybe helps 100 or 200 uh, people with severe alcohol problems per year, for that to be approved, it would have to be approved by an independent uh, government body. The industry that produced it would only be able to input in that process in very transparent, particular ways. The evidence and the design the mode of action, all that would have to be independently scrutinized by academic experts. And that whole process would have to be transparent and rigorous in order for that treatment to be approved. So if that's the case for a pharmaceutical treatment way downstream that affects a few hundred people, why is that not the case for a public health campaign that's viewed by millions of people and where the industry that's co-funded it or funded it has a much larger conflict of interest with population health. And I, I think just building on, on that in very important picture that Nason you know, paints there is that also even once out there, once there is evidence through rigorous testing, for example, there's even post-release surveillance. So for interventions that are pharmaceutical based, we have rigorous ways of saying, but we need to make sure that now that it's in the public domain, and this is out there and it's trying to improve health, 
that if there's signals that it's not working, someone, an independent body will have a look at those signals and say, what's happening? Why is this actually causing more harm than good? And that's why drugs are retracted because we find actually this, the harm is out, outweighing the good. And we don't have systems like that on, 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 um, on information, which, which is you know, a, a real gap. And I think the other thing is, if you think about it, just extending this analogy a bit further is when you take a drug or another type of intervention, it's often got very clear markings. So it's CE marked, you know, there's a regulator, you know where it's coming from. We don't have anything like that really in place. I mean, there's a suggestion now that health apps will be approved by various health bodies, and that's in early days. But we don't see that um, with, with this type of health information. About, you know, let, let's, let's remember that we're talking about products that also are um, cause cause a lot of um, death and disability around the world. So these are not trivial trivial harms that we're we're talking about here. Yeah, this part of the conversation is actually mind blowing to me. The, the analogy with uh, pharmaceutical trials and just the standard we are setting, like you are saying as well, that these things actually affect real people, and and they are fomenting or causing real harms potentially and our policymakers right now often rely on these uh, campaigns and say something is going on and now you have uh, just alerted me to the fact that we are not even analyzing what the effects are good or bad in the end and i i think one thing is to also think about is when sometimes there are evaluations so there'll be evaluations um, either by the organization or they'll commission one, but um, generally uh, they are, they are uh, evaluated by the people who are, who are disseminating them. And, and um, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, you, you know, we shouldn't mark our own homework. I wouldn't review my own papers. So um, it's important that you, you have a, an independent eye on, on, on some of these things. Um, and, you know, we do see that um, when, when you do get... Um, so we, we're looking at the content, but for example, there was a recent study in Australia that, that looked at messaging campaigns, and they did again when they saw when they actually um, evaluated people's responses to these, whether that's intention to drink less or intention to modify drinking or their perceptions of um, whether drinking is is a positive thing. Again, the, the people's responses differed very much depending on whether the um, company, whether the messaging was um, funded by by industries or companies versus a public health agency. So even when we measure, so we measure the content and we look at the differences. But even going one step further, people who independently measure the responses to people, differences are seen there too. Mm. In the beginning, you talked about also the context of uh, your research, and we were saying that there is there might even be an advocacy dimension to it, but also a public uh, discourse dimension. And uh, probably we were going more into the public discourse dimension. What is it that people process and what they understand? And you were explaining these different uh, biases that the alcohol industry wants to play on. But when you are working with, with this, do you have um, an advocacy thought where you think that uh, people like Christina, that's what uh, could happen uh, with your research? So personally, I think um, the key goal uh, for me personally, I think it is quite a personal thing. So I'll let May speak, <laughs> speak for herself. Um, the key goal of any kind of scientific research is to bear witness to forces that are shaping the world. I think that's uh, a, a key goal for any scientist. And it has been in every era. Uh, and in my view, in, in this era, one of the, the biggest forces that influences health the most, but has not really borne witness to, is been borne witness to, is the power of the, the private sector. And particularly uh, in the case of multinationals that have a conflict of interest with population health. So uh, as a researcher, um, I try not to think about specific advocacy you know, goals. I, I try to focus on bearing witness to these forces and doing so in ways that inject more truth into public discourse. Uh, 
And uh, the purpose of us designing the, the, the study in this way with a framework was certainly thinking that advocates, other researchers could then use the framework and view these materials through the lens of behavioral economics, through the lens of dark nudge and sludge. And it's really heartening to me to see that you're already using that lens and looking at these materials and other materials and saying, oh, this is actually employing some of these very sophisticated, very effective uh, techniques. So that to me is, is, is a great sign. I must say, I, I must just echo what, what Nathan says. He, he summarizes um, uh, my, my, my kind of, you know, research ethos uh, very, very well. And I think um, building on, on that further is this, is this lens. And I think what's so important about being a researcher is that you, you it, it, it's opening up windows, it, it's, it's illuminating potentially things that we, we, don't, we don't get so much attention as well. Um, we, I, you know, I very much am, am of the, the school of thought that we also shape reality when we do research because we're saying actually this is something that's going on that potentially we didn't know before and that shapes people's understanding of what's going on. So there's also, um, I feel, a, you know, a real obligation that, um, you know, research first and foremost um, is for the public good, and I carry that through from from being, you know, in clinical medicine before. Is that you know my first and foremost is is the interest of of the public, and I think, you know, our work hopefully adds more to the picture, which is often sometimes told as as well. This is you know this is what's happening. This is the health information. Hopefully, we add a bit more detail. But where's the information coming from, and and what are the potential interests here, and and I think the other way, when I think about advocacy, um, I think um, advocacy, you know, and, and um, um, movement groups have always been at the forefront of, of social change and, and change hopefully for the better. And so I'd like to think sometimes we, we're part of a, a change movements, making things even better than they can. Because I, I know we, there's always this argument, we've come so far and we have, you know, if I look at public health and I look at health in general, it's, you know, we, we talk about all the negatives because that's what we do in research. Great strides have been made, but we can do even better. And I think if we can add to that story, I think that's also very important. What do you think, Christina? This is a beautiful conclusion, isn't it? Very empowering. Absolutely, yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, because I think you have already spoken to the, the last question to round off the conversation. And I think, yeah, please go ahead. Um, I did want to give one small uh, additional piece of information. Sure. Which is that when you read our paper, it's very dense. It includes a lot of information. It's very long and it builds on a lot of theoretical frameworks. In a way, that is sludge sludge that prevents people from reading the paper. And that's why we developed a short uh, video <laughs> with very simple language that's a few minutes long that describes the paper. So I just wanted to flag that, that if you want to share the findings of the paper, and in general, if researchers want to share their findings more broadly, I, I encourage them to do something like that to reduce the amount of sludge involved in getting the main messages across. At the same time, I think in addition, I would say that I see that our role is to translate the, this research into some kind of understandable language that of our, uh, our groups that we are working with. So it's really welcome. That it's great that we do not need to make that video, for example, but I think that I think it's really our responsibility to take care of that too. Thank you so much, Nathan and May, for taking the time to get into the details of your latest research and to talk with us about the larger context of the findings from your research paper. We really appreciate the time you took. So thank you one more time. Here are the alcohol issues you need to know about this week. In Policy and Science News, we talk about the latest Global Burden of Disease study, its key findings and what they mean for alcohol policy making. 
Landmark study shows failure in tackling preventable disease. The global burden of disease study for 2019 published in The Lancet has found that failure in tackling preventable non-communicable diseases has made the world more vulnerable to COVID-19. The study also highlights worrying data about alcohol's contribution to the global burden of disease. The Global Burden of Disease study is a resource providing understanding of the changing health challenges facing people across the world in the 21st century. The GBD is led by the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation and is published in the Lancet Journal. It is the most comprehensive worldwide observational epidemiological study to date. The information from the study informs clinicians, researchers and policymakers to promote accountability and improve lives worldwide. The 2019 GBD study analyzed 286 causes of death, 369 diseases and injuries and 87 risk factors in 204 countries and territories. The study shows the preparedness or lack thereof of countries' public health systems in terms of tackling underlying health issues which increase the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. The failure of countries' public health systems to tackle preventable risk factors has made the world population highly vulnerable to the ongoing pandemic brewing the perfect storm fueling COVID-19 deaths. The GBD study found that COVID-19 was not a single pandemic but a synthesis of a coronavirus and an epidemic of non-communicable diseases on a background of poverty and inequality. While global healthy life expectancy, so the number of years a person can expect to have good health, has increased between 1990 and 2019, it has not risen as much as overall life expectancy in 198 of the 204 countries analyzed. This indicates that people are living more years in poor health. Disability rather than early death has become an increasingly large share of the global disease burden, rising from around a fifth of total burden in 1990 to more than a third in 2019. While low- and middle-income countries have made significant gains in improving health systems, they are still not equipped to manage the growing NCDs burden in their countries. While deaths from infectious diseases decrease in low- and middle-income countries, deaths due to NCDs have been on the rise. Improvements to health systems in high-income countries have started to stagnate and actually reverse in some cases, such as the United States. The rising NCD disease burden is driven by the inability of health systems to tackle preventable risk factors. Over the past decade, large and worrying increases have been noted in exposure to several highly preventable risks, including alcohol use, other drug use, obesity and high blood sugar. These risks contribute heavily to the growing NCD burden in the world. Alcohol, for example, remains one of the leading risk factors contributing to the global burden of disease. Here are a number of key findings of the recent GBD study. Alcohol is the eighth leading preventable risk factor of disease. The contribution of alcohol to the global burden of disease has been increasing year by year in the last three decades. In high-income countries, alcohol use is the second fastest growing risk factor and in low- and middle-income countries, alcohol use is the fourth fastest rising risk factor. Alcohol is the second largest risk factor for disease burden in the age group 10 to 24 years. And Alcohol is actually the largest risk factor for disease burden in the age group 25 to 49 years. In the context of alcohol policy making, these are shocking findings. In 2010, the WHO member states unanimously adopted the World Health Organization Global Alcohol Strategy. Based on that landmark decision, 
Alcohol was then also included in the 2013 Global Action Plan on NCDs adopted by the World Health Assembly, in which governments committed to a voluntary goal of reducing per capita alcohol use by 10% until 2025. Unfortunately, implementation of the WHO Global Alcohol Strategy has been and is ineffective, inadequate and outdated as Movendi International explained in a comprehensive analysis submitted to the World Health Organization. In addition, recent landmark studies clearly show that global goals of alcohol use reduction remain out of reach. In fact, in several parts of the world alcohol consumption is even increasing. Kristina Sperkova, the president of Movendi International, comments on the GBD findings and puts them into perspective. Alcohol's contribution to the global disease burden is growing, not shrinking. The fact that alcohol has remained over a 30-year period the number one risk factor for disease burden among the 24 to 49-year-olds is truly shocking. It shows that commitments made so far on international level, especially the WHO Global Alcohol Strategy, are ineffective, inadequate and outdated. The current level of political attention, commitment and resource allocation for alcohol prevention and control is far from where it should be. Better tools and international instruments need to be developed. In this week's Big Alcohol Watch, we discuss evidence from Ireland about the child rights harm due to alcohol and the alcohol industry and the delay in implementing the Public Health Alcohol Act that would better protect children from these harms. Ireland, alcohol is widespread and pervasive in children's lives. Alcohol Action Ireland details how widespread and pervasive alcohol harm is in children's lives and calls on the Irish government to urgently implement the laws in the Public Health Alcohol Act in order to prevent these harms and to protect children's rights. In Ireland there are clear laws and provisions in the Public Health Alcohol Act that address the problem and yet children's exposure and vulnerability to alcohol harms remains a blind spot. The Irish Public Health Alcohol Bill was heavily opposed by the alcohol industry and the adopted Public Health Alcohol Act now is being undermined by big alcohol efforts to derail implementation. The consequences are severe, for example for children and their human rights to health and development. Data is very clear about the magnitude of alcohol problems that children in Ireland are facing. Ireland is estimated to have the third highest prevalence of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in the world. At least one in six young people are impacted by parental alcohol problems and adverse childhood experience that can have lasting impacts into adulthood. Irish youth aged 18 to 24 have the highest rates of binge alcohol use in the European Union. Alcohol was identified as a risk factor in three quarters of Irish teenagers for whom social workers applied for admission to special care. The report of the Independent Child Death Review Group found alcohol to be an issue in one third of the cases of unnatural deaths reviewed. Alcohol was found to be the second most prevalent issue after neglect and twice as prevalent as other drugs in the home and 85% of Garda youth diversion programs named alcohol-related crime as first on the list of offenses committed in their respective area. Irish society is evidently failing to protect children and youth. It's not for the lack of laws but lack of implementation. The severe harm from alcohol in children and youth as depicted in these facts is entirely preventable. As well as being a public health and social justice issue, alcohol harm is very much a child rights issue. Every child has a right to the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health 
and to an adequate standard of living for physical, mental and social development. Children have the right to be protected from harm, to develop fully and to participate in the decisions which affect their well-being. These rights mean that every child has the right to grow up free from alcohol, a fact underlined by the World Health Organization, Regional Office for Europe and the WHO Global Alcohol Strategy. For example, research shows that young people who are exposed to alcohol marketing are more likely to consume alcohol, initiate alcohol use earlier and engage in binge alcohol use. The alcohol industry in Ireland is clearly fomenting a massive problem for their profit maximization objectives. These are this week's alcohol issues highlights. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you have stories you would like us to cover or if you have suggestions for topics to explore, please drop us a message. My email is mike.dunbier at movendi.ngo. To read more about this week's alcohol issues and to provide you with more details and sources, we have referenced all stories in the show notes so that you can easily find all alcohol policy highlights, the latest science digest and brand new revelations about the alcohol industry. Of course, we have also linked to more information about the scientific study we discussed with Nathan and May. And if you have feedback, questions and suggestions, please get in touch. We share our contact details in the show notes as well. The Alcohol Issues podcast is made by Arin Pinho, Taraka Ranchi Goda, Kristina Sperkova and Mike Dünnbier. Our theme music is by LF Music. That's it for the Alcohol Issues podcast this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stay well and safe and see you next week.